Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 141, where we will be discussing Edgar Rice Burroughs's A Princess of Mars. I'm Jeff, and with me today is that green man of Mars, Hoy. Fourpex. 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 <laughs> yeah, I was saying earlier, a lot of the art renditions, they've got, they've got four arms, and sometimes they have four pecs, but sometimes they have four arms and two pecs. So apparently, Hoy is team four pecs. <laughs> also joining us today is one of our all-time favorite artists whose works can be found in RPG products like the Chronicles of Ares, Lineage, and Blackbirds, novel covers like The Witch Hunter and Raynard the Fox, and album covers for bands like Dark Rune and Desolation Plains, whose renditions of Elric stole our hearts, Goran Gligovich. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you a, a part of the team today. Right, yeah. it's a thrill. And I was just saying to Goran, I got my copy of Black Sword Hack, just not too far along too long ago always good to see that's that hilarious because also it's a complete coincidence this actually happens to be in reach as well i have this sitting right next to my <laughs> my, my vaults of barn as well vaults of barn and my black sword hacker right next to each other at the moment Excellent. yes very exciting stuff so um i guess to start with let's go ahead and learn a little bit more about you and your history with this stuff so how did you get into rpgs how did you get into fantasy art and how did you get into the fiction yeah well uh uh, the RPGs themselves, I'm only basically curious about. I still haven't done any uh, gaming. Uh, but the art is the big thing that, that, that drew me in. So, I don't know, since I was a kid, I used to read Conan comics, stuff like that. And I kind of naturally gravitated towards that kind of stuff. And then, of course, as you get a bit older, you read The Lord of the Rings and then other stuff. And uh, I, it, kind of, uh, it kind of flowed naturally uh, from thing to thing, and I always enjoyed the visual component of fantasy, uh, the 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 fact of other worlds, uh, strange creatures, interesting locations, stuff like that. Uh, I guess it's just a way for me to uh, get what's inside my head outside of it. Yeah. So were those Conan comics kind of the first thing that like the young Goran was flipping through and just getting really excited about? Uh, well, the first adultish thing. Uh, I, I did read uh, Mickey Mouse, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Asterix yeah. is, a, is a big thing for me. My all-time favorite comic, Asterix, since, mm-hmm. since I was maybe five years old. But the, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, uh, the first adultish thing I read was probably Conan, the uh, Savage Sword series, the Marvel stuff, the black and white stuff. Mm, so yeah. that would be a lot of the Filipino artists uh, oh, yes. that were in there at the time. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Alfredo Alcala is one of my favorite artists, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, so my understanding is the former Yugoslavia, I mean, it's just an incredible hotbed for, uh, you know, comics, comics art. And because it was sort of in between sort of the more Iron Curtain countries that were a little bit more open to yes. sort of like, you know, Western capitalist decadent art. <laughs> such exactly. as comics, so. <laughs> uh, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we we uh, got a lot of French stuff, Italian comics, Spanish, uh, not so much superhero stuff, but uh, lately that's been a, a big thing too. So yeah, uh, comics have been popular here for for a pretty long time now. Mm-hmm. And was it uh, all in translation, or were you able to also get the stuff uh, in the uh, original languages? Recently, uh, 
when I say recently, I mean for the last maybe 10 to 20 years. Uh, there have been the original uh, issues as well, but a lot of translation too, a lot of good translation. So yeah, mm. we, we've been able to enjoy a lot of stuff. Now you got a my radar from the um, from the Elric art that you did. Did that happen because you were a fan of Elric and decided to do some art around it, or did somebody kind of say like, "Hey, I need you to do this art thing for me," and that's how it kind of came into your lap? Uh, no, the, the, that was only uh, the first proper fantasy novel I read. I remember reading uh, was uh, the first Hawkmoon book by Michael Morgan. Mm. So yeah. uh, and it stayed with me. F- for a pretty long time and then I guess at the age of maybe 11 12 I got to Elric and ever since then I've been inspired by the world by the imagery everything yeah it, it just clicked for me it, it's the perfect kind of fantasy that I enjoy yeah. and uh, I think I did the most of most of the Elric pieces last year actually at the beginning of last year when I felt comfortable with my skill level stuff like that I wanted to try to really bring something legit uh, together right. yeah but I love the contrast also because you seem like, you know, you have a very broad range. I've seen some of your pieces that are sort of like uh, slightly grittier variations on the Asterix and Obelix artwork, you know, the yeah. big noses and the big <laughs> yeah, mustaches. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then also your very clean renditions of sort of the, the, the theoretically animated version of the Earthsea books. So I, I think that the breadth of what you're trying to do is really uh, amazing as well, too. Thank you very much. That, I, uh, yeah. the, the main uh, uh, motivation there is just to, to not be boring ever, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> to myself and others, yeah. So that that's basically the thing. Mm-hmm. Now, you're known for a little bit for, um, uh, you know, pushing back at tech bros and all that. But do you feel that there's a role for um, technology as such? I mean, in art, creation of art. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I do digital art yeah. a lot. Uh, technology yeah. has been there. From I mean, uh, even a pencil is a piece of technology. Sure, so I don't sure. want to uh, yeah, get uh, into that. Yeah, we call it hot. Uh, but yeah, yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> but uh, I think there there needs to remain a human hand involved For sure. in all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's basically my stance. I don't care about any other argument about the AI art and things that are being talked about today. But yeah, I think humans should <laughs> stay involved with it. That's basically right. the, the intentionality, the, the feeling, yeah. all of that. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think about. Uh, do you know Doug Kovacs? Uh, I think I've heard the name. Yeah, he's an artist who does a lot of stuff for Dungeon Crawl Classics. And he and I were having a conversation back in, I think, January. And he was he was talking about um, how with 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 physical mediums, with with paint, with with pens, with with pencils, that like the elements you're working with are like earth and water. And these are like restorative elements that really um, bring things to you. But then he talks about how with digital art, the way he perceives it is digital art is created with light. And light is like associated with fire, which he sees as like a destructive element. (laughs) So it's kind of this interesting way that he kind of conceptualizes like the way that he views digital art and the way that it's impacting the world of physical art for sure i can see the argument for sure but i'm not that deep of a thinker i'm afraid yeah exactly that's great cool so also as somebody who has clearly read a lot of this stuff what kind of stuff would you recommend our listeners check out for inspiration for their gaming or just inspiration for cool things to be thinking about oh uh, well uh, i have two particular things uh, to offer here. Uh, one is uh, Mary Gentle's uh, huge doorstopper novel, novel uh, Ash, A Secret History. 
Uh, it's cool. a kind of an alternate history fantasy blend. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, uh, but suffice it to say that it uh, it's a doorstopper, but it's well worth it. Uh, so anyone interested can Google. So Ash, A Secret History by Mary Gentle. Cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, another book I've recently reread, actually, is uh, The Pastel City by M. John Harrison. It is, uh, I think, came out in 1971, but it's a kind of a science fantasy thing where lightsabers appear, mech suits, stuff like that. Uh, so some six years before Star Wars. And the cool. language is just magnificent. M. John Harrison is a, is a fantastic stylist. Uh, if you enjoy language at any level, you should check out his work. Yeah. And also the, the crazy imagination. So I, I think those two are my big things for, for now. To, to, uh, yeah. to recommend. I think both of those books have, have kind of popped up on our radar a couple of times, but never oh, been yeah. like jumped up as the, you know, Excellent. but I think this will definitely move them up in our, our list of things to put forward cool. to our guests, uh, you know, no um, doubt. put forward to our listeners to, to read. Yeah. yeah. Terrific. Cool. So let's go ahead and start chatting a little bit about A Princess of Mars. I guess first we can start with which edition of the book that we're working with. I, for one, um, I'm trying to free up a little bit more time in my schedule. So this is the first episode where I actually didn't read a physical copy. I, I listened to the audiobook in the car while I was like doing stuff in, in, in the world. So I don't have a physical copy. I, I do literally own physical copies of this. I have two vintage paperbacks, and then I also have a big bound collection of all of the John Carter stories. But what I did is I listened to the Barsoom series collection seven, um, I'm sorry, the Barsoom series collection, seven John Carter stories on Audible, narrated by Eric Vincent. So that's that's the edition I'm working with. How about you, Hoy? Um, I have the uh, great Michael Whalen Del Rey paperback, and I think I even have the Gina Deshiel paperback. But today I was reading, uh, it's from the Library of Wonder, which is, I think, an imprint of Barnes & Noble for a while. And it's a three-book uh, three hardcover. Uh, with the first three books, and it's illustrated by Thomas Yates, who is a pretty well-known comic book artist, and he actually dedicated it to to three of his favorite artists, which are Gary Gianni, Michael Kaluda, and Al Williamson. So I think it's a lovely copy. Um, <laughs> um, so and it looks than, really pretty. It is. Yeah, it does. Uh, yeah. And Yates had done a lot of, um, I believe also, he's sort of in that mid-80s period when before people had completely blown up the sort of the Rob Liefeld influence, you know, com- <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, really weird excessive cross hatching and the like. So, um, yeah, it was a ton of fun. And how about you, Goran? What, what are you reading or working with? Uh, I actually didn't want to risk waiting for a physical copy to arrive from the US. So I just got a uh, Kindle uh, version that's called The Princess of Mars Complete Illustrated Edition. But I think uh, this is. A, a fan upload or something because it's full of Rosetta art, but not all of it is related to John Carter. So it's just <laughs> a just a random upload, I guess. Uh, it was two dollars, I think. So you go. that's the one I. So was it's illustrated, but <laughs> yeah, not necessarily well, illustrated it has for the novel. In it, yeah, but I don't think. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's funny. So Hoy, what is our high Gaxian word of the day? Um. I actually came up with the same one that Adam Stiers came up with, but I think we should go with the one that Dan Alexander came up with, which was atavism. Uh, and atavism is an ancestral genetic trait which reappears after having been lost through evolutionary change in previous generations. Um, 
and this is in reference to the green men, the Tharks, um, how they had basically lost all compassion and um, the like. But Sola, the daughter, is apparently an atavism because she has, you know, even in the very uh, hard life that the Tharks live, that she has some evidence of compassion. Um, and uh, Dan actually cited the specific passage, but I couldn't find it in time for this this little segment. Well, I found um, I find two places that appears. Um, once I think I think the spot that Adam was referring, I'm sorry that um, Dan was referring to, was the sentence is she was indeed as her fellow Martian had said of her an atavism, a dear and precious reversion to a former type of loved and loving ancestor. Lovely passage, yeah. So yeah, there cool. you go, atavism. Nice. So now we can head on into the library. Oh, I didn't do the. I, I forgot to look up. Plot synopsis. So, sorry, listeners, we don't have one of those today. But I mean, it's 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 Edgar Rice Burroughs. If you've read anything by him, it's the same plot points. Uh, <laughs> Everything happens. Like the there is yeah. right. There's five. There is definitely five pounds of plot in a two pound paper bag. In this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a doorstopper worth of 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 story put into a slim little volume. Um, Goran, have you read this before? And if so, what was it like reading it the first time or revisiting it? Uh, I actually never read it before. Uh, but funnily enough, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs was my first read as a child. I read Tarzan of the Apes. That was my first book. Mm. Yeah, uh, And even after all this time, the beats, as I said, it's very familiar. It's a, it's a, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not very structural. It's episodic. Uh, it's very simple. Uh, a lot of breadth, not a lot of depth. Let's just put it that mm. way. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and but I did have fun with it. It's it's old old timey pulp. It's the, the Star Wars the Star Wars grandfather. Yeah. So I had fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. And had you read any Edgar Rice Burroughs between the first time you read a, a um, your first Tarzan story? And now, was there anything in between? Uh, well, I, I I read maybe five or six Tarzan books, so if that counts, yeah. Uh, but, of course, uh, that counts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something. Like and that. those were all a very young version of yourself that read those yes, Tarzan uh, books. As I said, the first book was my first book, and then maybe four or five years later, I read four more. I think one of them in- included the Tarzan going to the center of the earth, Pellucidar, stuff like that. I, mm-hmm. I think oh, I remember that. Yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, similarly, but slightly differently, I've only read the Pellucidar books, but oh, that includes see. the one where Tarzan came to visit. Ah, uh, sure. So yeah. <laughs> we have both read that one in common then. Um, but Hoy, how was your experience with A Princess of Mars? Yeah, uh, this was my first read as well. I had read uh, some of the Tarzan books, and I think I read one of the Caspak books when I was a lot younger, and then the Pellucidar books earlier. So we can see that his... Um, sort of plotting was never, I mean, he moves, it moves. It's, it's, it's oh, yeah. incredibly enjoyable, but that yeah. was never the thing that most concerned him. Right. Um, and um, it's as a couple of our uh, uh, patrons mentioned, it feels like a first book in both the good way and a bad way, right? In the good way, it's because he has so many ideas that his entire lifetime is pent up that he just has to jam them all in. Um the bad way is that, of course, that he can't follow up on all that stuff like that. And, and so it's just uh, at first 
um, sort of a little bit of a, a mishmash. But I think where he is successful, he's incredibly successful. Like when he his depiction of the Tharks and and the various Green Men's uh, you know their their society. Um, John Carter is almost a cipher, other than that he's you know a little bit arrogant and he likes to beat up on things. But, <laughs> but well, and unless I'm misunderstanding what you mean by saying that um, he doesn't follow up on all these things and 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 saying that that's kind of a weakness of the story, unless I'm misunderstanding what you mean by that, I actually think that's kind of a strength of the story. I love that he throws a bunch of stuff in there. And we don't actually know what a lot of those things are. And it's fine because it gives us a lot of really exciting fodder potentially for future books for us to explore further. Like when the when the Tharks turn a thousand years old and then they go down that river and are never seen again. We don't know what's going on with that. And I'm I'm pretty and in the patron book club, when I mentioned that, I'm pretty sure that like that's going to be something we discover in a future book. I saw multiple people nodding their head. Yes. <laughs> so I, I love that he's throwing a lot of stuff in there that he may not even fully understand yet. And he's like, ah, I'll figure that out in a future book. Right. Well, I mean, it. Uh, yes, I don't mean it in the sort of um, my enjoyment of it, because you know, there's a lot of like evocative stuff in Howard or stuff like that. That's never followed up. It's, it creates the, the feeling or, you know, but in the sense of. He's so concerned with velocity otherwise that it seems a little bit inefficient uh, on his part to start throwing all the stuff in there. And so that if you were looking at it purely from a uh, sort of a commercial storytelling standpoint, that it, it might be sort of um, like, OK, well, this, that didn't lead into anything. And maybe that's the, the, the problem with sort of like fan culture now. It's like everything has to lead to something. Right. And maybe it doesn't. <laughs> maybe yeah. it's there you know, yep. to, to, to make you feel like you're in a real world. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. And um, I'd say this is this is my first time reading uh, Princess of Mars. It's my first time reading any of the Barsoom books. Um, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun reading it. Um, and it's the same story as At the Earth's Core. It has all of the same plot points. <laughs> you know, you've got a guy on Earth of the modern time, at which time it's written, who does a thing that takes him to this, like, land of, like, mystery and immediately he encounters a giant species who's like really powerful and they kind of rule the show. And then he ends up discovering a beautiful woman who he falls in love with. And because of cultural differences, he accidentally offends. And then she pouts for several chapters. And then she's kidnapped while pouting. So then he has to go find her. And also along the way, he does something to disguise himself as another species. He also runs into an animal that he then ends up like initially as an adversary. And he ends up befriending and becomes a really essential part of the storyline. And then in the end, like rises to like the, this like great point of power and then returns back to earth. It's the exact same thing, but there's also some comfort in that too. Like it's kind of fun also just kind of seeing something, you know, and you love presented in a very different way. And I think in some ways, I think he really refined some of it in at the earth's core, but I also think in other ways, because this is his first time really doing it in this book, there's like a real kind of freshness there that's also really invigorating and exciting. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know of the two which one I enjoyed more. I think they're both fantastic. Oh, yeah, I would tend to agree with that. Um, Adrian made an interesting point, And maybe I don't know if this is something that um, uh, Adrian was one of our listeners again, that this is uh, shor shortly after the closing of the American frontier, uh, you know, the westward uh, frontier. And so America had to start refocus on sort of like global colonization, global imperialism. And John Carter is a reflection of that, right? He's a former, he's at loose ends, right? 
until he goes to Mars and now he can be like this the hero again. He's just he, that's yeah. his essence. He's a fighting man. Um, as is David Ennis. Like, okay, yeah. if we've explored the surface of the earth, now let's explore the, the interior of the earth. Mm-hmm. Where, but where David Ennis is, he's a little bit more technocratic, right? He's, he's traveling through the scientific device where John Carter is the pure essence of, cause he doesn't even know, right? He's a guy who's been at 30 for as long as he can remember. He doesn't have memory of his early life. He's literally just like the eternal warrior, right? He just needs to be at war, <laughs> right? Or fighting for something that maybe he can believe in, right? Yeah. Uh, so Goran, was there a particular part of this story that like really like that you really enjoyed or that you found officially uh, or, or found especially frustrating? Uh, well, uh, first things first, uh, the book came out 1912, something like that, right? Uh, yeah, so the story was first published in 1912. Before World yeah. War I, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, I was impressed by the world building. I don't think anyone before him did uh, this kind of world building in fiction. He really tried to, to form a cohesive world, Im, uh, imagining various tribes, hordes, cities, politics, stuff like that. Now, uh, where his actual politics shine through, it's, <laughs> it's very obvious. So uh, it's not like he's creating the Tharks, this horde, uh, as a kind of a cool thing to show you. He's actually presenting them as inferior to John Carter. So he oh, yeah. sees him as, yeah. Uh, there is a sentence there that stuck with me that said something like, uh, they are averse to labor, so that's why they're nomads. Stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> they're genetically uh, mean and vicious. <laughs> Things like that. Uh, but the Tharks themselves, as a creation, looking at them outside of the lens of the politics of the time, I really, really enjoy them. I mean, uh, if, they came out, if they came out in a book, I don't know, 10 years ago... Uh, Tarks would be like a cool spin on the orcs, I think. Mm-hmm. They're big and green and have tusks and they're tribal and they're warriors, stuff like that. Uh, it, was, it was fun imagining someone in 1912 coming up with something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, Goran, if you were to illustrate a Thark, would they have a, a, a pair of pecs for each pair of arms or would they have a single pair of pecs and four arms? Uh, I did illustrate them. Uh, I will post them again on Twitter. Uh, very cool. Actually. And yeah, uh, and they do have four packs because to move your arms <laughs> front and back, you need the pack. <laughs> so perfect, unless we just perfect. want them going up and down, they, they'll need the pack. So. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> reasoning for it. Team four packs <laughs> all the way. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, the imagination that's at play in this story is very, very impressive. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. And your point to the, the Tharks as, uh, you know, orcs. And um, I think that's important. We talked to uh, James Mendes Hodes a while back about, like, you can't just create a warrior race. And that's their, like, well, they're warrior, they're noble, savage warrior race. There's, there's a logic to why the Tharks exist the way they do and why their culture is the way that's it is. Right. Because, you know, and um, part of it is uh, a reflection. We know that he spent time in the American West. He was a cavalryman very briefly. Um, so he had encountered the, he had, you know, encountered the Apache and maybe the Comanche cultures as well. And it's not a one-to-one correlation. I don't think he's unsophisticated like that. Um, but he's doing that. Obviously, there's reflections of the various uh, step nomads of, uh, you know, Eurasia as well. Um, but he The makes Bedouin. It, I saw no, a lot of Bedouin, yeah. Bedouin also. But there's a, they're, they're their own thing, which is, I think, where he's very successful at that. And um, as you say, John Carter's perspective is one thing. But when we see them through 
more through Tars Tarkas's actions or even the the War the Warhoons, the other more vicious tribe, it still has an internal logic to how they their society yeah. is organized, which is I think marvelous. So I think yeah, he's very successful there. The characterization of the main characters is a little less successful. I would love someone to do a whole Tars Tarkas series. Probably, it's probably <laughs> some fan fiction. It's probably some fan fiction out there of like you know. Uh, of the green man yeah, yeah. Of the, the, some of the characters are paper thin and with 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 burrows oftentimes our protagonist and the love interest of our protagonist are there only to be the protagonist and the love interest of the protagonist they're yeah. they're nothing deeper than either of those two things no, exactly. but in a story like this i also think that that's kind of fine and kind of works setting aside the inherent misogyny and in having like the woman just be the love interest and having no real, real value beyond that be, be, beyond that part of it, though, I do think it still functions within how the story works. Right. I don't know that I definitely, I, de- I, I definitely like need super believable characters that I can really relate to to enjoy a story like this. But obviously, if this were being written in 2023, that would still be a goal that you would want to have because it is also even more powerful if you have a really fun and exciting exactly, world yeah. and characters you can really relate to. Mm-hmm. But I'm also okay with only having one of those two things here. Yeah. I mean, um, maybe he's also thinking in terms of if if John Carter's a projection onto Mars, we project ourselves into John Carter. So therefore, John Carter doesn't need that level of characterization because you know, we're going to bring ourselves to that. Whereas the other characters obviously require more of that, you know? Um, so that's a good point. If he's yeah. designed to be that blank canvas that we can then project ourselves onto, then, then I get that. Right. Um, Goran, is there a specific part of the book that you like really enjoyed? Uh, you mean, uh, exact, uh, like a section of a book that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the meeting, the Tharks uh, for the first time, John Carter meeting the Tharks. Uh, that was the propulsive bit for me. I wanted to know more at, at that point. Yeah. Uh, somewhere down the middle, it starts to meander a bit, becomes episodic, stuff like that. But uh, the meeting of the Tark, that was that was that was really cool. Yeah, what about what about that scene? Like, really, like, was grabbing you? Uh, I just think I, I gravitate naturally towards uh, meeting the 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 foreigners, stuff like that. You know, uh, yeah. it, it is an alien thing, and I want to know more about it. So naturally, yeah. it, it's propulsive in that way. Totally. And they're really cool. Tarks are really cool. <laughs> The part that I really loved from this book was the chapter that's called In the Atmosphere Factory. And it's when he like meets that old man <laughs> who um, who can't read John Carter's mind, but John Carter can read his mind. And John Carter ends up like tricking him in tricking the old man into thinking the nine Martian sounds that he that that need to be said in order for these doors to open. And then I love when like John Carter, what John Carter can now, because he can read the, the old man's minds, the old man's thoughts, but the old man doesn't know for sure if that's happening or not, suddenly gets paranoid that maybe he can read his mind, but then starts um, planning to assassinate John Carter. But John Carter can hear those thoughts too. I just thought that whole scene was really fun, really entertaining, had really cool bits of like super science and fantasy, but also just had some kind of like um, fun tension that was building as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. How about you, Hoy? Was there a scene that particularly leaped out of the pages for you? Uh, two things, I think. I love the whole chapter where Sola tells her, her story, her background. Um, mm. So that I think that in some regards, I mean, she's a green woman and she's not humanoid. I mean, she's humanoid, but not... Uh, I think that um, uh, 
Burroughs uh, writing the main female character, she's often paper thin. But if she's not considered an object of desire, a lot of times uh, secondary character female characters are, are well done in Burroughs' work. Uh, and Sola is an example of that. Um, I particularly like, though, the battle between the two Warhoon chieftains because it was so visceral and so vicious, you know, and, and that that's that and and it's as uh, compelling as any Robert E. Howard battle in terms of how violent it is. Um, so that and also the scene in the whole Warhoon, um, the, the sort of the gladiatorial games, you know, it was just very, uh, very well done because I, I tend to think of um Burrow is a little bit more Saturday matinee kind of children's fair in terms of his depiction of violence. And then I realized that's not the case in this, you know, this story. Um, so I think those, those two scenes were particularly well done. Yeah. So. Yeah. And in terms of um, looking at like the appendix N and the books that we have been covering for this project, it really seems like the, or not, it seems like, I think, I think the oldest pieces of fiction that are listed are the Lord Dunsany stories and these stories. And I think it just really speaks to, to the, to the, um, the creativity, um, the kind of the, the beginning of like modern fantasy that's really being explored here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is happening very much like at the, at the moment where we have like, we've, we've turned a corner and this is a really big part of us turning that corner in terms of fiction. Right, right. It's not based on like existing Indo-European or even your uh, um, uh, Orientalist sort of tropes. Of it's 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 its own thing, right? And it's mm-hmm. it's. I feel like I don't know, Ron. Maybe you could tell me. It feels like this could only have been written by an American, right? As opposed <laughs> to like someone. <laughs> right. uh, well, uh, I would say that there is a light Orientalism about it all, uh, as with yeah. any stories like this set in the desert sure. with the tribes on horseback sure. and rifles and yeah. swords, yeah. stuff like that. But I uh, I don't think it it, it uh, I don't think it's a one to one, as Hoy uh, said before. It's not a one to one correlation with anything so that makes it easier to 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 go along with i think uh but yeah mm-hmm. definitely this was even before uh robert e howard's way before tolkien uh and it does feel like um, a modern uh like a, the beginnings of a modern way of, of writing fantasy definitely mm-hmm. yeah yeah while reading it there are a lot of things that you can clearly see right away that make this feel like this is something that's uh you know 100 and some years old at this point definitely i'm um, yeah. Yeah, certainly in some of those opening scenes with like the Confederate, him being a Confederate soldier <laughs> and him single handedly defeating a tribe of Native Americans. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the kind of things that, you know, people really like looked up to in 1912 that in 2023, a lot of us are. Yeah. Um, we look at it in a different way now. Right. Yeah. He, he is a true gentleman. Uh, uh, and Virginia, translated yeah. to modern terms. It's probably like a genocidal maniac. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> I was, exactly. I was uh, watching the movie just the other day, well, about two weeks ago with my uh, stepsister's uh, two sons and one son who's nine, very sweet kid. And he's like, wait a minute, he's a confederate? Yeah. So he was like, he was enjoying the movie, but he's like, is he confederate? I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, uh, but Grant, I, I was curious also, I mean, there's been so many depictions of Burroughs' art out there, um, but is there a scene or a creature or anything that you would particularly like to illustrate out of this book and that 
maybe how you would maybe do it a little bit differently than the ways that have that have been done so far that's a good question uh i did try to to do a talk but uh it's not exactly revolutionary because they are described uh, pretty precisely in the book so you mm -hmm, can't stray sure. too far uh from from burrows but uh i think maybe i'd like to do a, a white ape or a fight with mm -hmm. a white ape something uh, i did like them in the uh, disney adaptation there were clearly apes gorillas but uh they still had something alien about them and i really enjoyed them yeah mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely maybe that or Wula. I would I would definitely try to to, to draw Wula. Yeah, yeah, because oh, Wula yeah, a little more a space dog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just pulled up your Thark, and I'm obsessed with this. I'm gonna go ahead and retweet re retweet this. This is great. <laughs> Glad you like it. Have you seen this hoy? Uh, not yet. No. no. As I said, if it's you just not revolutionary, it can't be. But yeah. yeah, yeah. If you just Google his name and Thark, it'll take okay. you the first you the first result will take you right to the the there Twitter post. Or if you look at our Twitter page, I literally just yeah. retweeted it. There you go. So looking at this from a, a gaming inspiration, now I know that you um, you mentioned earlier that you haven't actually done gaming yourself. You've done art for, for gaming. But um, I do think when we talk to people on this show who aren't themselves gamers but are artists or are authors, we're still working with people who are very much thinking about, you know, world building and creativity and all of the kind of things that are essential kind of building blocks of either game design or being a good game master or even being a good player. While you were reading this, was there anything about this that really felt like it was um, um, part of the DNA of kind of how we see fantasy and sci-fi today? Uh, I would say, yeah, uh... For example, the first example that comes to mind is the overpowered main character who, uh, who has uh, uh, strength and, and agility that are way beyond any of the yeah. characters around him. So that would be like the player character, the, the, the point of view character. Uh, also, the uh, world building wise, uh, everyone loves dungeons, right? Ruins, stuff like that. And Mars, Barsoom in, in this case, is littered with ruins, with cities that are way past their prime, it's, it's a flat desert, uh, kind of like, uh, reading the descriptions, it reminded me of the uh, Dark Sun art by Brom. You guys probably mm -hmm. aware of it, yeah. Sure, uh, sure. Very much so, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, uh, the savagery of it, it has, a, has a, a primal attraction, I think. Uh, who doesn't love a desert adventure? It, it, it's a classic for a reason, so... Uh, yeah, set, setting wise, especially a desert that's completely populated by very muscular men and women wearing S and M gear. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, <laughs> badass aliens with four arms and, and giant apes. Yeah. It just it just <laughs> smells of adventure, I guess. Uh, but yeah, as I said, I, I'm pretty limited uh, gamings wise, but uh, yeah, you can definitely see bits of John Carter or Barsoom in the adventure stories that we love uh, in fantasy in general. Yeah. yeah. Now, Hoy, how do you see this book as having maybe directly inspired the original iteration of Dungeons & Dragons or, or the original iterations of it? I guess both maybe maybe the the white box, but then also potentially AD&D when that was solely Gary. Right. Um, I think that uh, all things that uh, Garan said are on point. Um, mm -hmm. It's very clear that uh, the fighting man is exactly what Gary Gygax had in mind when he created the fighter class, which was called the fighting man in the original, you know, um, white mm -hmm. box. Um, and then 
it was more open-ended, right? The, the, you know, the classes weren't so delineated and so uh, niche-bound as they are in sort of more modern versions of the game. Um, and I think that, for example, DCC is quite successful at returning to that essence of like the fighting man as making them interesting as opposed to just like a, a meat wall for the magic users that it becomes more, more instead of like towards the end of like AD&D, you know, first edition and, stuff and the like. Um, so that's there. I mean, obviously a ton of the creatures have found their way maybe with the serial numbers found filed off into the various monster manuals. Uh, I know the white apes are in various versions of D&D. Um, and it's clear to me that Gary's original affection leans far more in the direction of Burroughs than Tolkien, right? Tolkien, I think, was a commercial decision to uh, to present with D&D because the Tolkien was so successful in the late 60s and early 70s. But oh, at that yeah. time, Burroughs was huge, too, because, I mean, Burroughs didn't really go out of print. I mean, he's never really been out of print, but you could get Burroughs paperbacks for the Del Rey and all that up through the early 90s. And then I think it became less commercially attractive once they became um, uh, public domain, right? So once it's public domain, the major publishers don't feel it's public commercially attractive for them to keep on publishing these books unless there's a special edition or a tie-in or something like that, like you know the release of John Carter. Um, that's when you saw a flurry of these books being reprinted again by by major publishers. Um, yeah. So I think that there's all of that is there. That's the essence of what he I think what he was looking for with the fighter class. But then because of the sort of um, the limited what we'll call game technology of the time, uh, it didn't translate well into a single D and D didn't translate into a single protagonist well the way that Edgar Rice Burroughs books do. Right, it, it yeah. really favors the party. So that's what I see. I also think part of the reason why Edgar Rice Burroughs has fallen out of fashion over the years is that the novel takes place on Mars, which is a real planet that we now know is not inhabitable. <laughs> and it's just this like <laughs> yeah. empty rock with nothing on it. Right, right. And Edgar Rice Burroughs and Lee Brackett and a lot of other people had these um, had these really imaginative, creative ideas of what Mars and Venus were like. And Edgar right. Rice Burroughs is also exploring what the center of the Earth is like. Um, Garan, while while... While engaging with this kind of stuff, do do does your knowledge that this can't possibly exist on Mars um, in any way cheapen this the the experience of reading it or take you out of the experience of reading it? Since this was written at a time where we really didn't know what was going on on Mars, yeah, not at all. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, not at all. Um, I mean, even even the Earth that uh, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs presents. Is not the Earth that we know. Uh, it's his version. Of it. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. So, uh, to me, uh, any any kind of setting that's um, supposed to be our world or any other world, uh, it's very easy for me to imagine an alternate reality where where the thing that's being described is true. So, uh, yeah, it, it never once did occur to me to to say, well, you know, ah, I, too bad. <laughs> that Mars doesn't look like this in reality. No, uh, in this yeah. book, or oh, oh that's does. not realistic because <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> gravity would not do yeah, that. It, we know, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's 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 an odd thing to talk about, but it's amazing to me how many um, people who are fans of uh, fantasy and science fiction have actually incredibly prosaic imaginations. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it's very, very rigid, it's yeah, very, yeah. Uh, yeah, very rigid. Well, I guess it depends on what you're coming to the literature for. 
Yeah. You know, because I think the same is true with gaming. You know, I think well, rules like gamers yeah. have a, or, or can be very judgmental with, of gamers who really like lots of really involved rule systems and vice versa. People who like really involved rule systems, I think, can be really judgy of rules like gamers because they're just like, OK, yeah, like you guys are just playing make believe. This isn't a game. Right, right. And I think the same can be true with people who love fantasy and science fiction. Some people really want it to feel realistic if it's taking place in a medieval type world, we don't want to see technology that was not present in, in our medieval world. If you're going to be doing things involving space, we want to make sure that the physics of it makes sense with our current understandings of physics. But then there's also a huge group of fantasy and science fiction lovers who don't give a shit about any of that stuff. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my point, yes, and you're absolutely right. I guess my point would be like, if you're going to read Burroughs, then you're reading Burroughs. Why would you carp on any of that stuff? If you're reading yeah. on something that is nominally realistic, like I don't yeah, know, Andy Clark, Weir's The yeah, Martian, yeah. <laughs> no, Arthur C. Clarke, then yeah. those discrepancies and mistakes would, would leap out at you even more. But yeah. I know what I'm getting with Burroughs. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, like a, you know, I, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. If you don't like chocolate, don't eat chocolate, right? But exactly. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I meant. Uh, I mean, Star Wars is probably the, the most popular science fiction property in history, but it's actually quite fantastic. It's actually 100% fantastic. Right. Totally. It's John Carter. It's Flash Gordon. It's stuff like that. It's not science fiction, but yeah. oh yeah. All of these planets with with breathable atmospheres and all of these aliens that are yeah. bipedal and, yeah. you know, just look like humans, essentially, with, like, a weird head. Right. Exactly. exactly. Sound yeah. in space, you know. Any yeah. <laughs> Dog fights um, in space, stuff like that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, no, I think, uh, um, yeah, it didn't take me... It may, maybe this is actually... Well, unfortunately, you know, the movie was, you know, mismarketed in... Disney abandoned it, but I think this is actually sort of the right time for it because in the seventies, you can see, or eighties, you can see why it was dropping off because um, it seemed like that was the period of like the, you know, we could depict that new realism. Right. And, and, you know, and that was a, that's very technocratic sci-fi from the sort of the Campbell side of sci-fi, Robert Heinlein, all that it was very technocratic. And we've since sort of backed away from that, maybe because the, the blinders are off our eyes to a certain extent, as to that technology is an unalloyed good. We know that's not the case anymore, right? Although you couldn't yeah, convince, point, uh, again, you know, although what you're talking about, uh, you know, about Mars being uninhabitable, don't tell Elon Musk that, you know, <laughs> he'll, he'll have his <laughs> <Yeah>. atmosphere factor. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? He would be running that, uh, that atmosphere factor, but he'd be charging everybody, right? With the, you know, eight, $8, <laughs> for, yeah, no. for, $8 for oxygen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Capitalism in space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing that I, I I I know I talked about this when we did at the Earth's core, but I just want to bring it up again in terms of gaming stuff. I just I love the stuff with um, uh, is it Woola? Woola, the, do yeah, the yeah, dog, the dog, the dog, space <laughs> yeah, dog, the Martian dog. I I I love that stuff. I love when Burroughs has the moment where the protagonist meets the two creatures that are fighting, or meets the creature as its enemy. And then because they end up in a situation where they end up having to turn to each other to help each other survive, they now have this bond. And I think in a lot of gaming and also in a lot of fiction, our, our thinking is that if we encounter the bad thing, we have to kill the bad thing. And that's how we win this scenario. And that's in video games. That's like that's, mo that's basically that's most, default, 99 percent yeah. of what video games <laughs> yeah. are. Yeah, exactly. Oh, 
there's a monster, let's kill it. There's never the chance of like, oh, there's the monster, let's like get the thorn out of its paw and make it our friend, you know? <laughs> and I, I want to see more of that in gaming. I, I just, I just, I love that stuff so much. Yeah, I think, and that was a pretty common thing. Remember this, the mammoth in um, which one of the, uh, it's one of the other Pellucidar books, right? This, that mammoth that they, they befriend, yeah. Yeah, the old, yeah. Um, so I think that was a pretty common theme and it was pretty common in sort of children's literature and it's kind of gone away from sort of more quote unquote adult, adult literature and everything is, and maybe that you're right. Maybe it's a video, video gamification of thing. This is an object. It's in our way. Let's take care of it. Yeah. Right. Um, con- I guess people want heightened conflict and then the resolution then has to be about, you know, be worthy of that conflict and so maybe some people feel that's deflating uh you know i don't think so but i'm saying maybe people feel it's deflating like oh well you know i befriended it gave it a you know a sugar cube and now it's my you know yeah, it's still conflict resolution though so uh depends on it what is. you want to it do. is but yeah. Well. yeah yeah but um you know uh i guess also is that also again your your art at least that has been most popular of your work has been sort of more um it's not grimdark. It's a little gloomy, though. It has uh, the, the yeah. visual, the initial surface visual of it is a little gloomy, a lot of it. Um, are you in any way, like, drawn to things that might be sort of like the in-between scenes, the sort of like, oh, here's just the Tharks resting, you know, uh, in, you know, or something like that? Are you drawn to those in, in any way? Uh, as, definitely. As That's things? well spotted, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, first of all, uh, Frank Rosetta nailed the action scene. You can't go beyond him. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I prefer... Uh, moments when you can really see the character, when you can spend some time with them, for lack of a better term, uh, when you can exist in the same world, so to say, without necessarily going through the stress of fighting or conflict resolution. Uh, so, yeah, as you said, most of my work uh, presents scenes that are more mellow. I think that's maybe also the Brom influence. We mentioned Brom before. Uh, mm-hmm, the yeah. way his characters stand almost iconographic, like orthodox icons, staring straight at you, symmetrical, and you can really uh, drink them, drink them in, so to say. Mm-hmm. When it comes to illustrating something from fiction, do you prefer it when you have something like a Barosian Thark that is very clearly described for you? Or do you prefer it when it's more like a Lovecraftian entity that like maybe like like we refer to its gibbous form and talk about how, <laughs> you know, I cannot possibly describe the horrors of what I'm looking upon. What, which do you prefer to illustrate? I like this question a lot. Uh, I don't think I can give you a, a clear answer, but uh, I will say that uh, I did find the uh, precision with which the Tharks were uh, described limiting when it comes to the my, to, to my visual interpretation. So, for example, uh-huh. I would not, uh, uh, speaking strictly as an artist, I would not put their eyes on stalks. But in the book, they're described as being on stalks and turning around independently. Mm. Uh, I think it makes them look ugly, but in a cool way. Uh, but I probably wouldn't have gone. And the movie itself, it, it didn't go with the stalk eyes. They, they have front set, almost humanized. Uh, now, uh, when it comes to, to more Eldritch Lovecraftian stuff, the thing there is, uh, there's no uh, wrong answers, I guess. So you can really yeah. go wild with it. Which is why it's disappointing to see, for example, Cthulhu uh, drawn pretty much as a giant squid every time. 
with bad things, yeah, maybe. Makes, there yeah, are interpretations yeah. Gi- that I adore that aren't just a giant squid, but yeah. Uh, I think that this kind of thing gets ossified over time when as uh, more and more people depict them, they kind of get crystallized into a, into a set form, yes. which, which is not ideal uh, from the visual point of view. So I don't know. Uh, I, I agree. Yeah, uh, maybe something in between to, to answer your original question. Yeah. I, I do like to Which, have a starting point, but maybe not every detail described. And I won't go into the full rant like I have in the past, but it's a similar thing I've talked about on the show about how like certain things like the dragon, for example, yeah. it's really fun reading older literature. And by older, I just mean pre-1980, reading <laughs> yeah. literature before 1980 um, that has dragons in them, they can look really different from dragon to dragon. But kind of once D&D got really big, it's it's as though society came to an agreement on this is what a dragon looks like. Yeah, consensus, this is yeah. what an elf <laughs> looks like. And this is what a dwarf looks like. And you're not really allowed to deviate from that so much anymore unless like you're specifically making a big statement by doing so. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, if you deviate too much, it's perceived as going out of bounds and it's not a thing anymore. It's something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for example, the, yeah. the the Balrog in the in the Lord of the Rings, uh, it, uh, it 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 is described very vaguely. You know yes. that it's made out of fire and shadow, and that it has a whip. But are those wings behind him? Are those just shadows? Stuff like that. It it almost feels uh, it almost feels like a shame to to define him any more precisely than that. Right, and especially because in the it's a it's a thing that's almost um, not of this world. When we talk about Gandalf's fall into the chasm and the transformations that both he and the Balrog go through, but we want to limit it to, to this Batwing demon with flaming eyes, right? And like almost yeah, every yeah. depiction, there's some variation of some, you know, whip wielding uh, humanoid. Yeah. Um, it's always Satan from South Park, bigger, longer, uncut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a heavy metal mascot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I. I suppose that there's, in a, you know, there's there's two ways to think about it. You know, in one way that we're talking about an idiom and working in a tradition, just the way like medieval anonymous video artists would carve gargoyles on on a church. Well, that's a gargoyle. That's a gargoyle. That's a gargoyle, right? But then somebody will put something on that's a little different. Will sneak one into the church of like, oh, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> you know, a gargoyle taking a piss or something like that, and something like that. <laughs> a little bit like you know, get get a little joke in there. And so I think there's room for that. Um, it also may be because of the um, the um, the omnipresence of mass media now, so that there's less room for sort of regional depictions of things, uh, you know, because uh, the things just spread, right? So if, you might be that, you know, a few years back, you heard someone describe a Balrog to you or a Thark, and you just kind of drew it your own way, and it would be your own little evolutionary tree of Definitely. how you drew a Thark. But now everyone knows what a Thark looks like because they can just find, you know, Google it on the internet, exactly, and there's a yes. Thark, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like how we all picture um, Lord of the Rings elves with pointed ears, even though nowhere in the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit does it describe elves as having pointy ears. It's even in the movies now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And now all elves must have pointed ears, else they're just pretty humans. Yeah. 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 I think we were talking about, I I really liked also your talk about just sort of these in between moments and depicting the other artist I'm really, really big fan of. Uh, fantasy artist recently is Moon Cow, who did the uh, Thousand Thousand Islands scenes. Have you seen? Are you familiar with any of his work? Um, he did these. Oh, it's a uh, sure, yeah. Zedek Sioux. They're, they're based on Southeast Asian uh, like uh, mm-hmm. themes. But when, the thing he said, he deliberately would make his uh, drawings boring. 
Um, so he <laughs> depicted all these people who are from this region. And he, instead of them being in action poses, it's always like, oh, they're a little tired. They're sitting down because he wants to sort of de-exoticize it. And by that, make it more real. Because if it's always a battle scene, you're only ever time to the drama. But then you don't really think about like what this culture might be. or That's how a the, fantastic you know, so like, point, yeah. They're yeah. Agreed completely, yeah. Yeah, so I thought that was a, a really interesting uh, way to approach it. Not that there's room for all the others, but as you said, you can't no, out for Zeta for Zeta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> n- n- yeah no way. <laughs> yeah. And before we start wrapping up, was there anything about the book you really wanted to chat with us about that we didn't quite get a chance to get to? Yeah, uh, I did like that the ending was pretty much a cliffhanger. I know that it was a commercial concern. It's not exactly an artistic choice. But somehow uh, the ending made it feel like did this man dream all of it? Was this real? Is it, has he gone crazy in the desert? What happened there? Uh, as it turns out, of course, later there are sequels and everything. So yeah, he, he goes back and forth. Uh, but something about that ending uh, not being conclusive uh, didn't feel of, of its time. I, I, I kind of would have expected the audience to expect a happy ending and a clean resolution. And we didn't mm. get that at all. And I really enjoyed that, actually. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, and, and maybe maybe I'm off base here, but I kind of feel like that was maybe even more common then than it is now in a way, because what I think of is I think of A Wizard of Oz, and I think of Alice the Looking Glass, and I think of even a little bit later, like Chronicles of Narnia. And we have all of these stories where like you start in this one place and you go to this fantastic world, and then suddenly you're back home again. And kind of the journey back is like kind of usually kind of hand waved. And also there's often this idea that like, you know, going back is a good thing, you know, with the, with Dorothy and the wizard of Oz, it's like, Oh, there's no place like home, but it's like, yeah, yeah but your world is black and white and like <laughs> d- dreary. And you live with these really boring tornadoes. old people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's, and there's dangerous tornadoes and a mean woman who lives next door who hates your dog. It's like, why do you want to go back to this world? Like <laughs> Oz just seems like a way cooler place to live. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, the other thing you mentioned, just talking about commercial considerations, that's a, something that we've discovered a lot through this project. Like the, the stories were written to be serialized. So that's why they're paced yeah. the way they are. A lot of the books are thinner because the glue in the paperbacks in the 70s and 80s wasn't that, <laughs> wasn't that good. So the books were, were thinner. Um, and I think a lot of people have talked about this in any range of artistic creation. Sometimes it's the constraints that drive oh, the greatest imagination. Like, okay, oh, yeah. I only have like a, a four by five space to work with so that's why we get you know we do like you know byzantine icons right we can't you know we don't have like a six foot by eight foot canvas right to work exactly. with or something like that what was that phrase um, the the form the form defines the the content so yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so based on i mean obviously again nowadays since so much stuff is done digitally or can be done digitally do you sometimes have to create yourself for your process say i'm going to deliberately work within some kind of constraint i'm going to toss this technique that i like to use or rely upon i'm just not going to use it at all because i have to do this thing and to just yeah uh definitely yeah uh for example for the elric pieces that you mentioned before uh my number one decision was uh the clothes can't be all black no blackness it has to have a lot of color in it the way it's described and usually when you see elric he's all in black that was the first one. So uh, no gothy <laughs> visuals. Uh, and the, the second one was uh, try to have very garish colors opposed to the blackness of the environment. So th- that was the, the, the kind yeah. of two limits that I that I uh, gave myself. 
Uh, I don't know if it, if I was 100% successful, but I did want it to look kind of like a Italian giallo film, but in a fantasy. <laughs> yeah, in a, in a fantasy yes, context. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 I love it. Makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah, just like, yeah, Moorcock does say, you know, he's always dressed in, like, green checked, in Correction yellow checked pattern, trousers. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So that seems like a great place to go ahead and wrap up. So um, do you have any kind of closing thoughts about A Princess of Mars? I, I don't think I can think of anything. Uh, uh, I would recommend the book for everyone who loves adventure stories, pulp, stuff like that. Uh, it's in some ways, it's really ahead of its time. In some ways, it's very much of its time, but well mm-hmm. worth it. Well worth it, I think. Yeah. And if um, folks want to find your works online, where would you recommend they go about doing that? Uh, you can always find me on Twitter, at uh, Goran Gligovic. Uh, Ch is written as a C. Also, my website. I tend to update a lot, so you can see anything I'm working on on my Twitter. Uh, that's about it for me. Cool. And do you have any projects that you're working on right now that you would like our listeners to kind of have on their radar and be on the lookout uh, nothing for? Nothing I can talk about yet. There are some things in the pipeline, uh, but nothing I can I can say uh, anything concrete about. So, Very cool. So, Hoy, where can folks find us? Right. Um, if you want to drop us a note, do, you can do so at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, again, until the Twitter ship finally burns to the waterline, we're there at, at appendix underscore N. Uh, and Jeff, how about our Patreon? Our patrons get to join us before we record for an exclusive patron book club. And uh, today we had a lot of fun hanging out and chatting with a pretty full house of patrons today. Today we were joined by Adrian Carpio, uh, Joseph Hoopman, Damo Saklas, Dan Alexander, Rick Byrne, Jeremy Harper, and Adam Stiers, and that was a fun conversation. Um, also, our patrons get to choose the books that we cover, and the next book we'll be covering is Robert Asprin's Thieves World, which I'm very excited to read. I've heard great things about that over the years. And I would also like to reach into the hat and pull out a name, the names of a few of our other patrons to give them a quick shout-out. So thank you to Robbie Fioto, Kurt Hockenberry, Eric Johnson, Carsa Torvold, Dave Hotstream, Robert Stites, Corey Sepalek, Gabriel Laycock, and Josh Legeman for your support. We really appreciate it. And with that, our episode is done. Goran, we are thrilled to have had you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, a true pleasure and an honor, as always. Okay, everybody. Thank you. See you in the facts. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>